there's often this mentality that that progress in one area drowns out the development in another area. So for example, I've heard someone recently talk about the focus of the church right now should be on racial equality and the conversation on sexuality and identity can wait until we've got this figured out. Okay, first of all, I'm, I'm pretty sure that um, you know the people of God can walk and chew gum at the same time. Second, you know, do not all boats rise on a high tide as the old saying goes. So how, how do we, let's say the church, have multiple complex conversations at the same time that actually leads to change. This is the CBF Podcast Conversations. Each week, we are bringing you stories from across the world of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. Ideas, stories, and creativity from practitioners, ministers, thinkers, authors, and more. I'm Andy Hale, your podcast host. We're excited about another year of delivering interviews worth your time, attention, and collaboration. This platform is not designed for you to listen on an island unto yourself. Share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast with us on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF podcast community through our CBF podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We see you, Tucker, Georgia, Warsaw, Poland, San Francisco, California, and Sydney, Australia. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. We also want to give a special shout-out to some of our podcast listener supporters, including Carson Fushi, Cindy Foldendor, Bill Johnson, Ralph Stocks, and that anonymous person that keeps giving a gift in honor of CBF Prom. And before we move on, we want to give a word of gratitude to our three annual sponsors, the Center for Congregational Health, McAfee School of Theology Doctorate and Ministry Program, and the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. And now... On to our conversation. This podcast is presented to you by the Center for Congregational Health, whose mission is to help faith communities and their leaders thrive. Healthy congregations can transform their communities to be more compassionate, faithful, and just. Utilizing a network of highly skilled coaches, consultants, and intentional interim ministers, the Center supports congregations and ministry leaders to address the challenges they face. Visit their website, healthychurch.org, to learn more about how the center can be your trusted partner in ministry. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is Dr. Kelly J. Baker. She is a master editor with her Jedi grammatical skills, benefiting the Women in Higher Education, the National Teaching and Learning Forum, and the Disability Acts. She's authored several books, including The Gospel According to the Klan. She's also written for The Atlantic, The Religion Dispatches, and The Washington Post. Dr. Baker, thank you for joining the conversation. Thank you so much for having me on. Okay, so what's the correlation between your book, The Zombies Are Coming, The Realities of Zombie Apocalypse in the American Culture, and this freaking pandemic that we've been in for 19 months? <laughs> you know it's one of these where I get this question a lot where people are like how does the zombie apocalypse compare and the running joke in our household is at least the zombie apocalypse is fast you know like so we're in this like ever ever going on pandemic right feels unending um it's super slow 
Um, and so they kind of feel different in that way. But I think they're, um, it's a way that if we like look at zombie films and see how people act, right? That you can make these parallels. Um, so there are always the people that get bitten, right? And hide the bite and then turn into a zombie and infect everyone. So it doesn't take much of a stretch to think about people who have COVID, right? Or have passed along um, either through not realizing or their unwillingness, you know, to kind of address this. Um, I think it shows us something about um, the ways in which people can inhabit different worlds in the same reality. Um, so folks that are deniers of the pandemic still and who are anti-vax kind of read like some of the people um, in zombie books and zombie, um, so zombie fiction, zombie movies, right? Television, who um, kind of imagine that they're invincible or that this stuff doesn't apply or that they're part of the kind of conspiracy theory for this. Um, and so for me, a lot of this has been, especially from that book, which is a lot about conspiracy theory, is been about um, how people have kind of fallen into these ideas about, you know, vaccines having something in them, right? Like that are gonna track us. Or um, I think my favorite one is like the 5G explanation, you know, that somehow we now have 5G and I'm like, will my phone work better? I don't know. Um, and just the way that that kind of stuff runs rampant and that kind of knowledge, people embrace it and aren't paying attention to kind of what's going on around them in other ways. And so I think that completely fits in with that book. Um, I actually finished that book in the beginning of the pandemic, um, which was kind of weird uh, in itself to be writing about pandemics while experiencing one. Uh, and I think there's also too a piece of this that's important is that kind of government skepticism that exists in zombie media that we also see play out now where people are just not trustworthy of some of the information that we've gotten from the CDC, um, from Fauci, right? Um, and, and part of this is to do with miscommunications that we had early on, but that like nervousness over the government and what they're trying to do, right? Um, that are definitely a part of what's happening now and part of what's happening in that book. You know, when you first started talking about uh, the the pace of the, the pandemic, I was thinking, well, you know, it actually depends on which zombie genre you're going to go with of just how quick those uh, zombies are. You know, if it's the walking dead, you've got plenty of time to get where you're going. Right. Uh, unless you need right. to bring some drama out of nowhere and all of a sudden everybody forgets just how slow they are and they creep up on them. But, uh, you know, by the way, we are not necessarily uh, here to talk about this book, but I am curious as to what you think America's obsession with apocalypses, let alone one laden with zombies, will, will how will that might change as a result of this pandemic? No, it's a great question. Um, I, I have a hard time trying to figure out how the best answer for this, right? Uh, so part of me wonders uh, if folks aren't gonna be tired of these kind of apocalypse stories after going through something that very much feels like an apocalypse. You know, are we gonna reach a stage where people are like, no, we just can't handle this in our fiction, right? Our TV, our media more generally because we've like lived through it. There's another part of me, that might be the more cynical part, um, that thinks that that apocalypse genre is not going away, that maybe it'll be more pandemic driven in portrayals maybe it'll be more fantastic 
so that zombies are what we come back to or like killer robots or something, right? That That's there that maybe is more futuristic. Uh, but I don't think we're going to get rid of those kinds of apocalypse tales. I mean, I think they're too kind of baked into American culture and um, folks find them very useful. Creatively, they're very useful, right? To think through um, and for folks that are producing fiction, it's, it's a way to talk about humanity and right, what happens to humanity in crisis. And I think we have a lot of examples of that during the current pandemic that I think could easily be fictionalized into a different kind of story, but I think it would still be an apocalypse story. So I would be really eager <laughs> for it not to be apocalypse stuff, right? Like to move on to something different um, and, and reimagine maybe a better world instead of destroying the world in some sort of way. Um, but you know that like optimistic side of me um, really wars with the more cynical historian side of me about this. Well, if this uh, you know uh, pandemic has taught me anything is I'm not as prepared for the zombie apocalypse as I thought. Um, I remember <laughs> I remember going to the store when the stay at home order was issued in our state, and I was like, all right, let me go get a bunch of supplies for like three weeks. Three weeks will be good. And uh, yeah, no. Um, so, you know, you, you, um, you know, as I survey your, your writing specifically, uh, your book work of you written about the clan zombie apocalypses, mental health awareness and sexism well before these recent major movements have seen significant, uh, progress. Now, obviously sexism and racism are, are nothing new and we're a lot, uh, further, um, you know, uh, back than we should be. But how do you keep such a, a prophetic pulse on the American societal landscape? Oh, man. Um, I always, I had this line on my website for a little while where I was like, you know, I study these things, but I'm not a prophet because that makes me really nervous. You know, like it was this like running joke because I would get these emails where people are like, oh, you're working on this, you know, like, you were like ahead, like, what do you envision? And I was like, I don't know. Like, I don't know how I land on this stuff sometimes. And um, so I think part of it is that um, I end up down these rabbit holes of things that I'm curious about, you know, that I started working on the Klan because I was really interested in religious hatred and thinking through what religious hatred looked like. Um, and then I just happened upon white nationalism. So it wasn't one of those things where I was like, oh, you know, in um, when I started my dissertation work in the early 2000s, it wasn't a thing where I was like, oh, white nationalism is where it's at, right? It was like, if we follow this and think through about religious hatred in American culture, like, what is a good example of this? And I was like, oh, the Klan's really obvious. Um, or I thought it was obvious. Maybe it wasn't to other folks. Um, and then, you know, <laughs> By, um, by later, you know, and around 2016, people are like, oh, this white nationalism. Wow, it's a thing. And I was like, huh, okay. You know, like I had said it was a thing, um, but uh, there's a little bit of dismissal there. Uh, and I think that they, the same thing has happened with some of these other topics, right? Um, where, you know, when I started working on zombies, um, people were like, well, this is kind of silly. I don't know why you're working on this. And I was like, no, there's something here about violence, right? And our ethics and how we view other people. Um, and then, and, and pandemics. And then of course, like as the book is coming out as a pandemic. So I think a lot of this is just me being situated in a way that I hit on these topics. 
that it's not necessarily intentional, even though it might look intentional. Um, I think I just sometimes fall into them in a way, um, in a moment where people maybe are starting to talk about stuff, but not entirely. Um, and I feel the same way about my mental health work, where it just happened to be, I was writing about this when there was a lot of movement on social media to like be very open and honest about mental health and mental illness um, to get rid of stigma. And that I started doing some of that and writing some of that um, a little before then so that I could pull something together. Um, but yeah, I don't know if I'm lucky. <laughs> I don't know if I'm really curious about these things that other people aren't curious about. Um, but I do feel like oftentimes I just kind of stumble into it instead of having like a clear vision of what this is going to be. So let's unpack uh, your work from uh, sexism to women in higher education. You know, for the listeners that might be thinking to themselves, well, I know that Equal Work for Equal Pay Act was signed into legislation years ago, or we've also had the Me Too movement. Um, there has been some, quote, great progress. What, what would you tell people, maybe speaking into the reality of where most corporations and higher education institutions are on gender equality? So this is a great question because I do think there is a way in which we've like celebrated victories that maybe aren't entirely victories. So, you know, um, equal pay for equal work, right? This is supposed to be a thing that happens. Um, when we know, when we look at the figures still, um, women are earning less on the dollar than men, that when we do a racial breakdown of that, black women are doing even worse than white women. So that you still have like, the goal, right, which is equal pay, but the reality is still very far from that ideal. Um, so that when we're looking at corporations, um, we're seeing that women are still hitting glass ceilings, so they're not progressing. Um, that again, when we break this down by race, um, the numbers are even more dire um, for Black and Latinx women. Uh, that we see this in higher ed too, that uh, there's still a lot of lawsuits and things around um, men academics being paid much more than their women colleagues at the same level, at the same rank. Uh, and so I think it's great that we can see these kind of cultural moments where it looks like there's going to be a shift and there can be, uh, but I think that doesn't tell the whole story. I think Me Too is a good example of this as well, right? As everyone was like, oh, Me Too, we're paying attention, right, to sexual harassment in the workplace. We're paying attention to sexual assault, we're paying attention to things that are happening on campuses. And so there's a lot of traction around this. And I think it was a good traction with activists and these sorts of things. Um, but the reality of where, what has happened because of that movement, maybe again, doesn't live up to those ideals. So that um, sexual harassment is still happening in the workplace, women are still leaving because of this. Um, that a lot of folks could kind of talk to me too, but didn't necessarily want to change their workplace practices on this, um, that women who are reporting these things are still losing their jobs or finding themselves in positions where they're losing opportunities at work or at universities because they've pointed this out. Um, and so I feel like we haven't come as far as those kind of junctures would suggest we are. Um, and part of the issue here is that sexism is still very much baked into both the workplace and higher ed. Um, that these are systems that are still sort of set up for men to succeed more than women. Um, and that could be about work week, that could be about family leave and medical leave and caretaking responsibilities. 
that can be about um, how women start with lower salaries um, and thus the pay equity thing doesn't work in the way it should. Um, so there are lots of pieces to this, but I think we're getting there, but progress is much slower than I think the media suggested it is. So, you know, as I think about, um, you know, higher education from the perspective of, you know, I've only ever been through that as a perspective of a student, but I can think about mm -hmm. vocational ministry for nearly 25 years. And if academia is anything like the church when it comes to gender equality, especially in key ministerial roles, then, then I totally get it. You know, for example, our denomination which was grounded on the core value of ordaining women in ministry still only has 7% of its congregations being led by female senior pastors. So I guess, you know, I guess what I'm wondering is how is genuine progress made? Yeah, <laughs> this is what I've struggled with a lot. Um, and in thinking through, like, how do we get to a better system, right? Like, how, how do we do this in some sort of way? And I think oftentimes what happens is that we have advice geared towards individual women, right? So I don't know that there's a month goes by that I don't read articles about, like, you know, like, if women would just negotiate better their salaries, right? Or if women would stave off families and get secure in their careers, or, you know, if you are more outspoken in the workplace or do these sorts of things. And so those individual pieces like could help individual women, but overall um, are really just like a pebble in a pond, right? Like it might ripple a little bit, but it's not going to make a splash that's going to change this in some sort of way. So I think a lot of this has to happen at a um, policy level. And a lot of it has to happen with more legal structure in place for protections. So, you know, um, the American Association of University Women uh, does a report every year about women in pay, where they pay attention to the gender um, pay gap and these sorts of things. And, you know, their policy just suggestions are always great ones where they're like, you have to guarantee family and medical leave, right? May, we need to be transparent about salaries and let people know what salaries are of private employers. You know, some public institutions have to post this so you could kind of see. Or don't require salary when you're bringing people into these positions. Um, have more flexible work since we know that women do more of the kind of second shift work, domestic caretaking responsibilities for families still. And the pandemic, of course, has made that worse, right? So I think it has to be these larger things that come top down to make this work. But I think it also has to be cultural change, right? Like a commitment to gender equality. So what does that look like, right? Um, maybe it means recruiting more women pastors, right? or setting up programs that are going to give them mentorship, right? Or a support group that's gonna help them get into these positions. So you really actually show that commitment. Um, you know, universities that are taking this very seriously and are trying to like promote women through the ranks. Um, because we know as leadership like goes up in higher education, we lose more and more women. So I think that the most recent statistic that I saw is 30% um, of college presidents are women. And so, and at each level, we see that we lose more women for a variety of reasons. Um, and so creating an environment 
um, where women can be mentored and nurtured and supported, um, that change can happen within departments, right? That change can happen within churches or denominations. It just requires a real commitment to this instead of kind of lip service to it, right? Um, and what I'll say is like, I'm not asking for much here, ha ha ha, right? Like I'm asking for a lot um, for this to happen, but it, but it has to be this kind of larger movement with a lot of buy-in and, um, and that's hard to do, right? Like I'm not trying to say, this is easy. We should be able to fix this in a snap. I'm saying like, we're having to like fundamentally change institutions and how they are handling things around gender. And that's really tough and thorny and takes a lot of hard, uncomfortable work. Um, but I think that's the only way it happens. What are some helpful practices you've learned from higher education on closing the gender equality gap that churches could use? So one of the big ones um, that I see more and more is a focus on mentorship. So um, there are a number of um, science, technology, engineering, mechanics, or STEM programs that are moving towards mentorship programs for women students, women faculty, right? Um, so that they have someone that's guiding them through the system, whether it's a woman or a man, um, that's doing this so that they have someone who has already gone through this process and who can kind of direct them and help them. Uh, that also means they have someone that can advocate for them, which I think is also very, very important. Um, we know that like affinity groups are great. So support groups of folks that are in these positions. So have a group of women professors that get together, right, to strategize and talk and figure out how to negotiate an institution. I think that can easily happen uh, for women pastors too, right? Like to have this support group and say, what does it look like out here? And how are we doing these sorts of things? Um, I think universities that have a commitment um, to hiring and to diversity and inclusion, where they're actively recruiting folks from underrepresented groups um, and also women, that that works as well. Um, so that there are, there are strategies in place here um, that institutions can do that will help. So things to do with recruitment, as I mentioned, things to do for retention. So to keep in mind that when, you know, um, women faculty or women administrators, you know, come to institutions and say, this is not what's working, right? Like I'm gonna leave because the system isn't working for me or this job, there are issues in here. For where institutions actually step in and handle that is, is a big deal, right? Say, oh, like something's not working here, you know, um, or we have this culture that's actually not great um, for women, then we need to do something to change this. And so you can see those kinds of those kind of interventions that are there um, that I think make a difference. Um, and then the other thing I would mention is, you know, there's a lot of discussion around allies that happens, you know, having people who are not part of your in-group, right, but maybe have more power and privilege who can help you out. Um, and I think that's important. And um, I tend to like the term accomplices better. So it's like people who are like your partner in this, not in crime, right? But they're your partner and they're like helping you navigate this or actually have a more active role, right? in um, helping you get through these systems and figure them out and then strategizing with you to get where you need to be. 
Um, and I think the more and more people that we have do that, um, who do this mentorship, who are working against institutions, who are really trying to foster change, that's how this happens. Um, but again, like it's, uh, I feel, I always feel bad when I say this because it's such a huge ask, right? Like there are individual level, uh, uh, individual level actions, group level actions, and then institutional. And all of these are kind of hard to deal with, especially when these institutions are very set in their ways. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, who invites you to support its mission of equipping thoughtful and practical leaders for service in the church and the world. Thanks to the generosity of a committed donor, all gifts to BSK through December 31st will be matched dollar for dollar up to $20,000. Your gifts will support students from 10 states who are preparing for Christian ministry at BSK. Give today at bsk.edu backslash give. BSK wishes you a blessed Advent and Christmas season. Since 2016, CBF has brought you over 100 episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. There's often this mentality that that progress in one area drowns out the development in another area so for example i've heard someone recently talk about the focus of the church right now should be on racial equality and the conversation on sexuality and identity can wait until we've got this figured out okay first of all i'm, I'm pretty sure that um you know the people of god can walk and chew gum at the same time second you know, right. do not all boats rise on a high tide as the old saying goes. So how, how do we, let's say the church, have multiple complex conversations at the same time that actually leads to change? I, I mean, I think this is a really important thing to grapple with, right? Because you see this happen in social media too, right? Where people break down by identity and we're like, no, 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 we should be first, right? Like we should be the ones that have this first. And I always think about, um, you know, black feminist writers who talk about how we're not free until all of us are free. So that it's very much the case that, um, and that's from the Combahee River Collective. And so it's very much the case that their idea was all of these identities, right, are represented in human beings, you know, that we have these intersections of identities so that we can't be boiled down to gender or sexuality or race, right, or ability. Um, these sorts of things, we can't like separate this out in some sort of way. So our goal then should be to help everyone. And one of the ways we do this is by making sure that the most vulnerable is taken care of and then everyone else is taken care of too. And, and I think that that's a really helpful way to frame it. So instead of like breaking it down, we can say like, who is the most vulnerable and how can we direct our attention here? And that that can lead to that kind of progress that helps everyone out, right? Instead of saying like, 
no, we're going to handle race right now, <laughs> you know, and like maybe in a few weeks we'll handle sexuality or months or years. Um, instead say like, no, our society needs to be better. How do we handle this at one time? Right. And, and to have this really complex conversations about how identity is not that easy, right? Like we can't parcel it out in the way that maybe we want to, um, or maybe that makes it seem more manageable that we're just kind of in it and have to work through it. And so I always find that really compelling to say like, you know, as you said, like all the boats will rise, you know, and that's, that's what we want to do. Um, but I also think there's something in there about how much easier it feels just to tackle one issue at the same time. And so I try to push people to not take that easy way, but to do the more uncomfortable piece and say, okay, that might be one way we can manage it. But like, is that serving our community? <laughs> you know, if your community is academia, if your community um, is a church, like, does it really serve you to take an easier route by saying some people can wait and some people can't and instead say, actually, there's an urgency to this. And um, we need to think about this in a more complicated, nuanced way so that it's more inclusive and helpful. As I, you know, you've got so many different books and so many things to pull from, you know, I'm going to switch gears a little bit to uh, the gospel according to the Klan. You, you laid out this 15-year history of the Ku Klux Klan's reign of terror and um, your research and writing, you, you were, I, I guess as you were, as you were researching and writing this, were you surprised at just how much the theme of, um, the themes of this time rhymed with today's white Christian nationalism? Yeah, so I always had this moment. So what I should say is when I first started working on this book, um, I got a lot of flack, right? Where people are like, I don't know why you're talking about the Klan. The Klan doesn't matter for today, right? Like we're over them. They're a relic of the past. Like, why are you bringing this up, right? Um, and so I was always kind of shocked by that piece of it um, because I've always thought that history is important and that legacy of terrorism, right? Um, and white Christian nationalism really matters. And so um, when I finished the book and had it published in 2011, it's kind of the rise of the Tea Party. And people were like, oh, well, this kind of makes sense. Like your book maybe makes sense, you know, um, in some sort of way. And so it's been very strange for me that when I started the book, it wasn't like a, I want to put my finger on the pulse of the present. It wasn't like a, like I'm doing this because, um, I'm writing with urgency about the present. It was as I continued the project that I think it became more of that. Um, and I have a friend of mine, um, Matt, who jokes like about like terrible things happen in American culture. And he's like, oh, look, your book is relevant again. And, um, and part of me is like, I don't want it to be relevant. Like I would like to, us to get to a stage where white Christian nationalism isn't the threat that it is now. And I would like us to be past that. Um, so it's kind of intriguing for me to write now where, um, and to think about that book still, um, about the relevancy and how it kind of pops up again and again, and that white Christian nationalism isn't something that can so easily be confined to the past as some people kind of initially wanted this to happen. Um, but, you know, as a recurring thing in American history that we still haven't kind of dealt with in a way that would get rid of it, I think. What would you say are 
you know, the most common or telling similarities between the Klan movement of the night of 1915 to 1930 and white Christian nationalism today? Oh, gosh. Um, lots of things. Um, I think that the way um, white Christian nationalism today and the white Christian nationalism of the Klan focuses on America as a place for only certain people, um, primarily white Christians that follow a certain brand of religiosity that combines Christianity and patriotism, right? That these two work together in both of these systems. Um, so that America has some sort of favor from God, right? And white Christians are part of this favored group and maybe other people aren't. Uh, both of them had a deep concern with immigration um, and were very anti-immigrant um, and were deeply concerned that America was somehow fundamentally changed by these quote unquote outsiders. Uh, and I think you see that now too. Um, it's still a kind of concern about like, what is America, you know, if um, white people aren't in power that I think you saw in the 1920s and you see now. Um, I think a lot of those conversations are about that, you know, like, what does it mean if we become a minority majority nation? Like, what would that look like, you know? Um, and so you see a lot of like the concerns over the white population that happened in the 20s and happens now. Um, concerns over patriotism. Um, both movements are very much a part of authoritarianism, right? Like that we want a top-down structure that we're going to follow and this is how we're going to handle things. Um, that we see some violence um, in both movements. Uh, though the Klan <laughs> didn't, you know, raid the Capitol, which was a new kind of wrinkle in this um, that I kind of like expected, but also found to be remarkably unexpected. Um, and so you, you can see these kinds of trends and even in the like language that they use, I feel like contemporary white Christian nationalists are almost like cribbing from Klan documents. I know they're not, but that Klan ideology has just been able to kind of continue um, from the 1920s on and is very useful um, for these exclusive movements that want to kind of divide America and say, here are our real Americans and they happen to be white Christians and then here is everyone else. You know, the church has obviously played a, an integral part in this movement um, because its members have sat in the pews, served on the deacon board, and maybe even were the ones delivering the sermon on Sunday. So thinking back to this particular period of time and then also today with white Christian nationalism, you know, what about the church creates such an open door and inclusive hug for racists? Yeah, yeah. So what I would say is that American Christianity has been attached to white supremacy for a very long time, right? So it's not like suddenly in the 1920s, there were white supremacists in churches, right? That's not how it's worked. Um, and part of that was white Christian participation in the nation building project, right? Of making America this like divine space, city upon a hill, right? Sort of thing um, that led to genocidal impulses that led to violence, right? All of these 
pieces of that. So that what I would say is that white supremacy has had a pretty safe haven in um, some white Christian churches throughout American history. And I think it really goes to that kind of relationship that happens between patriotism, Christianity, and white supremacy in the U.S. That there's a way in which all of those inform one another and kind of co-create one another in the Klan, but also in these other spaces. Um, that whiteness becomes goodness, right? That Protestantism is the only form of Christianity and there thus is good. And that, um, you know, Americans are supposed to love America and it's, it's a nation for these white Christians. So I think all of that works together um, and you find it in these spaces, right? As you mentioned, it's not all of these spaces, but you, you do find these kinds of calls there. Um, I can remember very vividly, um, I went to a, um, I'm not going to name the denomination, a church in college where they had, you know, like the American flag and the Christian flag, and you like did both. And, you know, then I was like, okay, that's kind of intriguing. And now I'm like, oh no, it makes sense, right? Like that both of these work together. Um, and it was a church that was very exclusive, that very much had a sense of um, who counted and who didn't. And I think that's part of it too, right? Like that there are folks that want to be part of this dominant group. And they think that this group is supposed to be dominant and in control of America too. Um, and that that's part of what draws people in as well, you know? Um, but I think it's, I think it's hard to say that, um, that it's just like racists show up here, right? As opposed to part of this kind of being baked in um, throughout various churches' histories. So, you know, you've drawn on it. It's, it's this remarkable comparison. You know, I guess history doesn't repeat, but it rhymes looking at this movement mm -hmm. from, you know, a at, at, uh, hundred years ago and then today you know, are we making any kind of progress uh, around this within the church or all these conversations, all these publications coming out about what Christian nationalism, are you hopeful that, you know, a hundred years from now, our, our great grandchildren are not going to be having this exact same conversation? Well, I'm not that hopeful. <laughs> so I think, so I think what I would say is, um, that's hysterical laughter, by the way, it's not like this is funny, ha ha, right? It's like, um, some sort of reaction here. I think that <laughs> it's, the, it's the laugh of insanity, if you will. <laughs> it is. It really is something there, right? Um, but I think um, that the issue here is that like white Christian nationalism is with us. And I think will continue to be with us until something pretty dramatic happens. What I will say is I do think that we have progress. Um, and so even from like the 1920s to today, I think we've had progress, right? Um, some of the immigration things that happened in the 1920s don't exist anymore, right? Like there are ways in which the Klan fell out of favor and doesn't exist as a cultural force as a way that it did in the 20s, in the 60s, right? Like it just doesn't have that kind of power anymore. So I think we see those instances of progress. And I think the thing that I try to remind folks when they're looking at something like the Klan or white Christian nationalism 
is a lot of times these movements are reactionary. So they are reacting to the progress that we've made, right? So that they pop up when there is this social change that's making these folks really, really nervous because we've had gains, right? That we've had things happen. So that there are people now that have more rights than they did previously. Now, arguably white Christian nationalists tried to take those rights away, but we see that there is this forward movement and there are folks that are countering this and working very hard against it. So it's not one of these things like where I am remarkably pessimistic about where we're leading. Um, I do think there's progress. I think sometimes it is two steps forward and one step back. Um, but there are folks paying attention to this. I, I will say what I find to be kind of profoundly disappointing is um, the way the media coverage of this happens, right? Where it's like, there's no white Christian nationalism. Now we have white Christian nationalism. Where did it come from? Now it's gone. Now it pops up again, right? And so that kind of ahistorical way to approach it um, often downplays how dangerous this can be. So I think part of me is like, yes, there's progress, but also there are some dangers here that we still have to really pay close attention to if we want to get to a point where this is not a threat, right, to our great, great, great grandchildren um, sometime in the future. Um, and so I wish there was a little bit more focus on taking this as seriously as I take it, where it's like, oh no, this could be really, really bad, right? And we've seen instances where it can be really, really bad. And so what we should do is be paying attention and have responses to this that aren't like, where did this come from? This is so strange. And it's like, no, it's not strange, right? It has a history, it has a legacy. It's a part of us and we have to deal with it um, because kind of trying to make it ahistorical or new or as something that's short-lived, it ignores how pervasive this is. And I think that um, is not the move we want to be making anymore. All right, what you work on next? Oh, goodness. Um, so I am still working on apocalypses. So I am currently working on a book about um, apocalypses and other endings. So looking at um, the climate crisis, looking at um, cryogenics, right? People that imagine that we can somehow freeze ourselves and then come back to life um, compared to other kind of endings, right? So um, to think about like the everyday endings that we deal with too. It's a really weird collection. I'm sure it'll be fine. Um, so I'm still thinking about apocalypses and probably will be for a really long time. Every once in a while, I think maybe I wanna write a whole book on the climate crisis, but I don't really know that I have it in me to spend that much time <laughs> on something like that. Um, I maybe have something in the works about pandemic motherhood. We'll see, I don't know. Um, but yeah, so there, there are things and, um, and then I am always working on stuff about religion and horror, right? And so just finished Midnight Mass. So I'm like really motivated to write on these kinds of things. And so we'll see, I have a lot of different options. The question is whether I'm going to be able to focus down <laughs> and get anything done. So, all right, hold on. Let's go back to something for just a second. So I am fascinated by 
uh, and science fiction has been talking about this for years, but they're finally starting to talk about it as a reality of this idea of unloading our consciousness into uh, the digital uh, you know, mm-hmm. landscape and, and living eternally, if you say, if, I guess for lack of better terms, right. um, within digital landscapes, like, right. Like, have you, have you read anything on this? Like, it's fascinating. I know that there, there was a, um, oh gosh, what is that show on Netflix? They did episodes specifically on this. And then the uh, uh, recent uh, you know, sequel to Ready Player One, Ready Player Two is around this whole concept in, in general, but um, yeah, yeah. No, I think it, I mean, I think that's super fascinating, right? Like the idea that you can sort of upload everything that makes you who you are into this other, like other ecosystem, right? Um, And continue on in some sort of way. So no, I think it could be really cool to work on that, that eternal life looks digital, I think could be very, very neat. And I've kind of followed along with some of the like Silicon Valley discussions of this, you know, Um, at the same time that I'm just like, wow, wow, like, it's really strange. (laughs) Like, maybe I don't want to be a digital upload that lives forever. Like, maybe that's not something we should aim for. Um, But, but that idea, right, similar to cryogenics, right, like this idea that like, you could somehow beat death by doing these things, right, and exist again, um, is way fascinating at the same time that i'm like yeah no thanks if you want to stay connected with kelly check out her work at kellyjbaker.com uh, kelly thank you for making, making the time to have this conversation um and despite your hesitancy to use these terms thank you for bringing a prophetic voice for the progress of positive change in our world oh i appreciate it i will i will take it for today <laughs> This podcast is presented to you by McAfee School of Theology at Mercer University, who exists to train ministers who inspire the church and the world to imagine, discover, and create God's future. Located in Atlanta, Georgia, the McAfee School of Theology offers doctoral and master's degree programs, including a fully online Master of Divinity degree, the only fully online MDiv offered by a national research university. You can visit their webpage, theology.mercer.edu to learn more about their programs and scholarships. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF's podcast on all major platforms, including iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's the Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, the Center for Congregational Health, and McAvee School of Theology's Doctorate of Ministry program. Check out cvf.net for more information about our church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and much more. Oh, and I don't think we've mentioned this, that you should join the listener community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.